I feel like I did really good like preamble there, but then it got a little bit weird. Um, you could just cut all this shit out. <laughs> yeah, this wasn't part of the show anyway. <laughs> no, it was because I talked about UTIs. Whenever I'm talking about UTIs, it's always part of the show, Yoram. <laughs> Hello. Actually, I think we agreed that this time we wouldn't talk about bread because last time was basically just the bread hour. But didn't somebody say that they liked the bread thing or wasn't there? Like, didn't you show me like a screenshot of somebody related to bread stuff who liked our show? So I feel like we're doing our <laughs> listeners a service. No, our listeners like dogs, Yoram. That was what the Twitter poll found out. Not not bread. Um, welcome to Plants and Pipettes. This is normally a podcast where we talk about plants and things related to plants, including molecular biology and biochemistry, that kind of world around plants. Yeah, and bread. I'm Tegan. Because bread is made from plants. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Joram. Some of, some of bread is made from some parts of plant, namely the flour, but not the yeast, which is not a plant. <laughs> you can source it from flowers, though, um, from, from, from plants. What? But not directly from plants, like yeast living on plants. But this is something uh, for later in the episode. Um, what what do you do? You like scratch a plant a bit over the the flower, and then the wild yeast from like the edge of a potato jumps into your. I mean, that's one way. I, if you just, I mean, sourdough is just the wild yeast that is on the flower already when you mm-hmm. when you mill it. So um, and that's. Like I have very few fun facts today, so can we pu- like push this to the fun fact part of the show <laughs> when, when we oh talk about goodness. where you can source yeast? Um, <sighs> okay, this this week, guys, Yoram actually sent me a, a document which has a dot point of things that he wants to talk about today, and it says Yoram saw a fox. <laughs> yes, this morning I saw. I think I said it before that we had foxes here, but this morning, um, <laughs> it's just. To me, it contributes to the eerie feeling of people like staying inside and nature sort of having mo- a little bit more space to itself. And I saw a nice fox. Um, I think it was an older fox. It was a little bit gray already. Um, and it was just like sitting in the sun in my garden. It was just very pleasant to look at. He was sitting there for like 15, 20 minutes just in the sun, like in the backyard where he's sort of surrounded by multiple things. So nothing can sneak up on him. So it must have been a very cozy and relaxing place. And he would just sit there and have the sun on his nose and like close his eyes and i could see him from my window it was just like a very pleasant thing to watch and i really like foxes i really wanted to go out and cuddle him although that's um a bad idea on so many levels <laughs> do they have rabies they probably have rabies right no not anymore and not like here in, in europe um rabies are not a big problem uh, i mean we've discussed that before you know it's not an island europe right st- still you can like it's not <laughs> As, it's not as uh, everywhere as soon as it pops up somewhere and i yeah. heard that uh rabies are not a big problem here otherwise we would be much crazier about wildlife and things here uh we can be i mean i have relaxed. already heard s- stories about um wild animals or semi-wild animals kind of starting to move back into the cities now that the cities are less populated and that sounds like yeah. one of the most charming things that can happen out of this terrible situation is that plants and animals kind of edge back in a little bit yeah 
Yeah, so um, that's pretty much what happened to me. I'm also playing Animal Crossing that just came out. And it's just like this very soothing game where nothing really happens. You live on an island and you like grow plants and you like collect bugs and fish. No, it's not like it, it has similarities to Farmville, but it has it lacks the entire um, pay to win and free to play thing. And this the entire idea of hooking your friends and waiting for 20 hours so your eggplant is ready all this stuff doesn't happen but you run around and like you catch fish and you collect bugs and you bring them to a museum where you have like an old character that's very excited about all the specimen that you bring in apart from insects which I can relate to it's like sorry did you say the owl character yeah like you you play a human but most of the other characters are animals that's why it's called okay. Animal Crossing, and there's like, like there's a um, not, not badger, uh, a raccoon is um, the boss of the island, and he sort of uh, uh, got you they there, would be, and, they? and he lends you money, and the entire game you pretty much pay him back. So he's like a hardcore capitalist that runs the things. It's like all like beautiful colors and so on, but actually you're just like working very hard on this island so you can pay back the debt that you have to the raccoon. Um, but it's all very You're kind pleasant. of a prisoner. Can you get off the island if you choose to get off? You can only visit other islands. Like even at mm. the end of the game, you stay on the island. You just make it prettier. You invite more friends and more other animals. Do, and you, do you think that I should put raccoons on my list of animals to like fear? No, I mean you can like, put, give them a little they, bit of. They thrive. Ca- the, they thrive in territory with people. They can open doors. They can turn on taps. So they could probably, like, presumably, turn on a gas stove and just like murder people, like theoretically. But you can also give them some candy floss, and then they will be disappointed when they try to wash it. And this is how you can control them. Yeah. So that's that's a good point. I don't think you could do that with a velociraptor or a crow, which yeah. are my my real fears <laughs> my, my very accurate and, and normal fears um no. shall we do favorite plants my favorite plant it took me the entirety of that jungle to find which of the 80 tabs I have open on my computer has my favorite plant after it. So um, the favorite plant for me this time is something that's very seasonal and appropriate for next week, maybe, but also generally this time of year. So um, Google has this kind of annoying feature where it keeps on reminding you of things that happened like three years ago, two years ago, whatever, which is really just delightful when you've broken up with somebody, really just a a super pleasure to constantly get reminded of the happy times that you had with somebody who was once the love of your life. Way to go, Google. Um, (laughs) But sometimes it also reminds you of things which legitimately make you smile. And one of the things was that when I first came to Germany, um, I came in 2012 and it was my first time living in Europe. And 2012, I arrived halfway through November, which is basically when things start to go to shit in the Northern Hemisphere. It gets dark, it gets cold, it gets grey, really grey being the the dominant thing. And that winter was the coldest, not the coldest temperature-wise, but like the longest and darkest in history. So it was um, the most consecutive days without seeing the sun that we had had in Germany since man started recording the presence of the sun in the sky in Germany, which I I imagine is a long time. Yeah, it was Um, was very depressing winter. (laughs) Yeah, and then sometime about like last week, so the end of March, 
um, in 2013, the sun started coming out again. We got one of these beautiful days in early spring, which you sometimes get in, in Germany, where the sky was brilliantly blue. It was still freezing freaking cold, but you could go for a walk and just feel really happy with the world. And I went into a park and I saw some bright yellow flowers. And I ran to them because yellow flowers, blue sky, amazing. But also this yellow color really reminds me of something from Australia, which is mimosa or wattle, um, which is kind of, I think I've actually done it before on the podcast. It's the emblem of my state and it's one of my favorite flowers from childhood. Do you know what the yellow plant is, Joram? I would say it's the Osterglöckchen, which is a type of crocus, uh, a yellow narcissus, daffodil. No, incorrect. It's not. It's, oh, so cool. it's what blooms in these in these around the time the but you yellow. said you called it some, an easter something uh, no not a crocus uh, narcissus pseudo narcissus mm-hmm. osterglocke osterglöckchen uh in german so easter bells yeah yeah no so this is also an easter related thing it's called easter tree by the common name but um the genus that i'm thinking of specifically is for scythia for scythia blah 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 so um I never actually knew what these guys were called, but I was mentioning to my colleague the other day how happy I was that the yellow was back, and she was like, oh, you must mean Forsythia. And it's one of these things that looks ugly for 11 months of the year, and for one month of the year, it's the most brilliant yellow. Um, It's quite a large bush. It can also be kind of draping. Um, And yeah, just, I love them. They're really beautiful. A few facts, it's belonging to the olive tree family, um, the genus has about 11 species and yeah, they, they bloom around early spring. So they give this really bright yellow quite early in spring, which is of course why they're also associated with Easter to this time of rebirth. Um, but the cool thing seems to be that although they're named after a Scottish dude, they were kind of originally taken from Japan mm-hmm. and they kind of made their way from... Um, Japan and I think also in um, China at the time as well via this Dutch East India company. So um, in the 1780s, they were first noted um, by Westerners. And I think that was at the time when Japan still had its doors closed to the rest of the world. So I think that was... um, Yeah, it could be. I'm I'm not sure exactly about the years, but yeah. Yeah, and then kind of noted and taken back. And since then, it's become quite a major things and you'll you see them everywhere in europe and also everywhere in london so it's mm-hmm. it's really a, a major thing now and they're super beautiful but the coolest fact i found about them and how i'm going to end is that it is widely stated that forsythia flowers are able to produce lactose which is milk sugar yeah okay sugar made in milk by mammals yeah isn't I try to remember now this. No, no, I try to think about the thing that people say, yeah, lactose is only like produced by like few animals and therefore like like cows, um, but not like you don't find lactose in like goat's milk or whatever. Um, So people who don't like lactose, they say it's like, it's not a common thing in nature and it's bad and stuff like that, which is not true. But um, some, I really like the idea that there is a shrub that makes lactose. As it turns out, the shrub does not make lactose. So um, <laughs> there's a very, very old article from 1989, I believe, um, which is, is lactose really pre- present in plants, written by Toba et al. And they looked for the presence of lactose in not only Forsythia, but also Acra, Sapota, and another plant called 
Zizifus uh, jujuba, which yeah have all had had all had reports of having lactose in them, and they did um, gas liquid chromatography and could not find any lactose in there, so it's unlikely. Yeah, do I think, th- do I think, think just glands. From, do you think that came from like contamination during the procedures, or how do you like randomly find lactose in plants? I think it's it's um I couldn't find much information on this honestly. It says it's commonly stated, so I can imagine that it's just like a kind of myth thing that it makes maybe sap mm. that looks milky or something like this um that then gives this story, but yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but cool. So the uh, uh, yellow shrub that's in bloom now that doesn't produce lactose doesn't produce lactose yeah my my take-home message is a negative well done yeah at least we're not listing all of the things that it doesn't produce and doesn't make oh yeah it also doesn't make um easter eggs even though it's called an easter plant uh, yeah. um <laughs> yeah no it, no it, uh, egg yolks it doesn't produce any egg yolks despite right? the color of being quite yellow okay yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's move on Diversity in the planet. Science. Um, yeah, it's it's me. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit slow today. I didn't sleep too well, and so I'm a little bit um, uh, beside myself. Anyway, so I'm. Uh, I want to re- introduce you to Natalie Uhl or Nat- Natalie Uhl. Um, from, born in 1919 and uh, she died only three years ago and actually her day of death was uh, late March so um, it's only like a couple of days ago that it was the third anniversary is that the right word like the third year after she mm-hmm. died um, and she was a leading palm expert um, she uh, yeah, she she studied. She began her research in uh, the late 1930s, um, and then took a break eventually uh, to raise her children. Uh, she was 13 years out of the lab and out of research, and just um, uh, staying at home, taking care of her, of her family. Uh, but then she returned to uh, returned to science, and interestingly, the reason she returned to science was like a massive increase in funding. And um, if I tell you, if I remember now the date. No, I can't tell. <laughs> I have to tell you because I don't find the date, so you can't guess. Um, she returned because the funding in science increased a lot because the Russians had the first man in space, which must have been somewhere in the 50s. 60s? Or early 60s or oh, something. man in space, not man on the moon. Must be the 50s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in 60. Seven was man on the moon, but U.S. American, but the Russians had Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, and this kicked off this uh, massive spending of the U.S. government in research, not only uh, directly in space research, but in uh, a lot of research fields. So, uh, uh, sixties, sixty-one, sixty-one was the first man in space. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, then so suddenly like places like the Cornell uh, University um, had a lot of funding and could uh, fund more research and uh, so she found a position and could retake her re- uh, research career and she got really interested in palms um, and started to to research the anatomy and the way they they 
pretty much uh, the anatomy and the way they evolved so she compared a lot of different uh, species and and uh, genera so that she could mm -hmm. see uh, for example the, the stamen or the pistils uh, from related species she could figure out if Uh, one of them had three uh, stamens, the other one had only one. And the question was, like, which evolved, like, in which direction did they evolve? Did the one split up into three or did the three fuse together into one? And she could answer that uh, based on the many, many samples that she analyzed in the many different species. So she's and basically doing, like, phylogeny, evolutionary <clears throat> phylogeny by yeah. really observing the, yeah. the, the phenotypic traits of everything. Wow, that's kind of cool, huh? Yeah, um, and the samples that she got, she uh, received them from a colleague of hers who traveled to many different tropical regions to look for plants and so on. So um, when reading about her, it sounded to me a little bit like she got the short end of uh, sitting at home and analyzing the samples. But she said herself that she didn't mind because she found it very, very exciting to do all the analysis because she could f uh, discover very exciting stuff, um, which she probably would have had less time for if she would have been out in the field collecting the samples. So mm -hmm. she was very happy in the place that she could um, collect all of this. And um, all of this culminated like in the late 80s um, where she co-authored a book, the Genera Palmarum, which is like a milestone in palm research and palm anatomy. Um, a book that's to this day a very important book in, in palm research just to just to understand and, and categorize the many different species that exist. And she said palm is an amazing um, uh, Uh, type of or group of organisms because it's very diverse and there's many things that we don't understand to this day um, coming, uh, starting from like pollination and uh, developmental stuff and um, so it's a very exciting organism and uh, yeah she she contributed a lot to this and she even continued um, teaching after her retirement so um a thing I th we see quite often <laughs> with like very successful researchers that they have mm -hmm. a tendency to uh, not being able to actually retire and sort of take it easy they want to keep going because i guess when you have some feelings on this but now is not the time to share <laughs> yeah um yeah and what i liked about her and i read an interview about her that um Uh, where she said, I feel very fortunate. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to have a chance to undertake a really big job. And also I was lucky all through my career in that I worked with really excellent people, which is something that I found very nice to uh, hear from someone so, so directly um, to mm. just say like, look, it's not all just my skills. Like there is an environment around it. And mm -hmm. I recently did a career talk where I talked a little bit about like psychom stuff. And this was a very important point to me that I wanted to make in the presentation that like, even if you take all of the steps that I took to get where I, uh, to, that I took to get where I am now, uh, if you would retake all of the same steps, but in a different environment, you will not end up where I am. So it's not just my own skill and my own influence. It's like luck. Mm. It's the people that you, that you work with. Um, but in the same uh, interview, uh, the person writing the interview in the, in the end said, despite her humble denials, her research laid the foundation for all future work of palm anatomy and classification. So, like, she did some amazing stuff. It's not It's not just the environment. She was also very also, good at it. It also sounds like they almost um, tried to downplay her. She, she commented that she had, like, a lot of help, which is just a reality, like an objective truth for everyone, as far as I can tell. And they kind of like, oh, you're being so humble. And it's like... Yeah, but that shouldn't be the threshold for humility. That should be the threshold for like just normal 
understanding of how life works mm. that other people help you and yep i don't know personally i when i hear talks by especially like older professors and they don't mention the people in their lab who did the work like who did the hands-on work or they don't mention like collaborators properly they don't use their their correct names i am then very suspicious of that person's ability to be a good collaborator like that yep. yeah yeah same that's what science is right and i would also wish for more people to to mention the fact when when they talk about their career in in retrospect to just acknowledge that it's not just their own work that got them there because there's many like there's also a certain tendency in in i would say often male researchers um to attribute everything that what they are to their own skills um mm. i mean it's a classic check your privilege thing which plays into this like there's a lot of things around you that get you where you are as well as your skills. Uh, your skills just make you able to take advantage of these the, the opportunities that you get. Um, so to me, it was just like very nice uh, reading that about her. So her name is Natalie Uhl. Uh, actually, I don't know if you would pronounce the last name differently. Like it, To me, it sounds a very German name, although I couldn't find anything about any German roots. But uh, Natalie Uhl, uh, uh, she lived from 1919 to 2017 and was uh, very important for palm research. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Okay, so this time it was my turn to spin the cognitive bias wheel, and I chose one belonging to the too much information category and the subcategory, which is that we are drawn to details that confirm our own existing beliefs. And this bias this week is called the ostrich effect. So based on that name, Yaram, can you guess what might be happening here? Yeah, I think it's this, this myth that ostriches bury their head in the sand so they don't see impeding doom. Um, so yep. it's, I guess the effect would be that you try to, like, you actively deny things that hint towards doom or, or problems or that um, go, go against your own beliefs. Yeah, so it is exactly the doom thing. Um, as you said, This, in this case, it's actually centered around behavioral finance. So the idea of the doom is that you're ignoring negative financial information and you're more likely to pay attention to finances when things are going positively. So um, the term was coined originally by Gail and Sade or Said in 2006. And um, yeah, it's avoiding... Um, apparently risky financial situations by basically just pretending that they don't exist. Um, after then, it kind of developed its meaning to be this idea that people avoid exposure to financial information that might cause them like psychological discomfort. So basically, again, just ignoring the bad news. Um, and there was a study again then later in 2009 which showed that people in Scandinavia look up the value of their investments 50 to 80% less often during bad market times. So when things are doing generally shit overall, they're less likely to check in to um, their investments. Of course, one of the things I like about this is that it has been criticized and there was actually a study that shows um, this is not the case. So in 2014, Gerzia and colleagues um, found that there was no attempt to ignore, there was no, like, not a thing that really happened um and in fact that like yeah they they said that it, there's not even people are not ostriches which is anyway 
ostriches don't put their head in the sand, but they kind of extended that metaphor and said, in fact, people are more like hypervigilant meerkats than head in the sand ostriches. And they are, in fact, constantly checking on what's happening, regardless of whether good or bad times are going down. But yeah, it's basically this idea that we ignore bad things and we only look at the the good things when making decisions, which I think... It can happen, right? I think uh, to me, I'm I absolutely uh, affected by this. I just remember when, like, there was this Bitcoin craze. I think two or three years ago, and uh, I found it all quite interesting. Like, I I don't really like Bitcoin, but I wanted to see how it plays out and how it works. So I got like on one of these marketplaces, got the cheapest amount of Bitcoin you could buy, which was like sixty euros. And I said, like, if I lose sixty euros, like it's it's annoying but it's not terrible so i'll just put that in and see what happens and maybe like i can triple it and then i can buy a, a nintendo switch from it uh or maybe i lose <laughs> everything let's see and then when it was like climbing up 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 i was just like multiple times a day i would check like how how high is it now how, how high is it and then became like there came this big crash and it lost like most of the value it accumulated again um luckily it never dropped below my sort of initial investment but now um that it had been on this very long low, I just didn't look anymore. Like I, mm. uh, I lost interest in it because the, like the numbers weren't as good. Like they weren't as they weren't terrible. I wasn't losing money. Um, uh, but, but that sounds more like you were excited by the good news as opposed to like. Yeah, I didn't try to avoid the seeing bad the bad news. Things, yeah. You weren't. Yeah, you weren't really trying to avoid it. You were just kind of like, oh, okay, I don't care about this anymore. Like you were just. I mean, you wanted that switch, and then once it became clear you weren't getting that switch, or you'd have to like work in other ways, you'd actually have to work for your money yeah. instead of just investing it. Um, yeah. Then, yeah, you kind of got bored of the idea. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's kind of similar to this idea of like a confirmation bias thing, where you're, um, yeah, seeking out stuff that kind of confirms what you want to hear, and, and also the- if you want to hear is yeah. Did we have to think about like not deviating from? Yeah, I think it's one that I presented, right? That deviating from the norm, the idea that you can't imagine something bad happening because you sort of mm-hmm. want to stick to <laughs> the, that the thing that you know. Um, yeah, and I think there's a similar, right? Like you, you are sort of on a base level where everything's fine. And you don't want mm-hmm. to acknowledge that something bad is coming up. And I think it plays into that. So I guess like anecdotally, you can make, find many cases for this bias. But if researchers actually look at it, say, then probably... Well, science seems to say it does happen, but science also says it doesn't happen. So like, yeah, you can choose what choose whatever you like. I think anyway, <laughs> this is the ostrich effect. Um, turns out ostriches don't put their head in the sand. The ostrich effect of putting the head in the sand may be a thing and may not be a thing. It's unclear. But the point is, humans are biased and flawed. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. Yes. You, this is where the fun Always begins. a good conclusion. This is where the fun begins. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, humans are perfect. We're brilliant. We're brave. Uh, We're fun really facts. Much. Yeah, um, we talked about it briefly at the beginning of this episode, if you remember, about uh, yeast and uh, where to get yeast from. Um, there was this guy who made the rounds on Twitter um, this week or last week. Ah, uh, this week actually, most of like two to two or three days ago, uh, on the time of recording. Sh- uh, Seamus Blackley, um, he was already Twitter famous last summer. 
um, because he managed to scrape some dormant yeast from Egyptian baking tools, like from. I think you mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, I think I mentioned that, and then like he spent the month cultivating the the yeast, but also growing emma, which is an ancient uh, wheat. Uh, like it's a pr uh, precursor of the wheat that we grow today. Mm -hmm. um, I do uh, remember the story, yeah. And so he, he grew that, uh, and then he now actually baked bread that is, I think, the closest you can get to authentic Egyptian bread. And it actually looks pretty nice, because they also didn't bake them in ovens, they baked them in pits and fire. They had clay um, shapes, like clay forms for the bread to put in. Um, then they would bury them in the ground with hot coals and then take them out again after a certain time so is this is this the thing i sent you with yeah, i think the it's story you send with it, the guy do you send it to me but ah. like actually like a couple of people send it to me okay sorry i was like <laughs> i remember this and then you're like no i haven't talked about this before okay um yeah he doesn't even use an oven he just yeah he just uh, yeah. drops it in the ground and bakes it um actually i don't know how for how long he bakes it but it's just fun to read his thread because he's so extremely excited about everything and the bread in the end it looks really nice it looks like a bread that i absolutely wanted i would want to eat compared to like many other like very primitive breads that are like flat breads or sometimes they're like very dry or um they like like salt or they're just like a very strong brick because they don't really have a, um, a rising agent in it. This looks like a puffy, nice, well-textured, delicious bread. Um, so the Egyptians could make good bread, apparently. And uh, But they chose not to. And the, the thing about yeast is this guy also on a different thread went out in nature um, and collected wild yeasts in, in the forest. So you would take um, just a mixture of flour and water, cover it with a sieve so that no bugs could get in there and then just like leave it for eight hours in the open. So like microorganisms could drop in there. And the ones that mm -hmm. uh, are probably yeasts, uh, wild yeasts that could like live well on, on the flour, he would then like isolate them and grow them more. Um, and yeah collect these wild yeasts uh, which is also quite interesting because you see them and uh, see him putting the, the thing out uh, in the forest um, and then a deer comes by and he sort of gets away and like uh, when he comes back like the deer has eaten all of the flour mix because apparently it's delicious to deer <laughs> uh, so next time he that went to a different like good place for the deer. is that good for the deer and he's just flour and water it, had, it had, didn't have any raising agent in it so it, I don't think it can be bad for the deer I mean what how could it kill the deer? Anyway, um, it could make it very constipated. Surely, I can would, deer digest like bleached flour? I think deer he is like whole grain flour or whatever. But anyway, um, he's all about baking breads in like w different and weird ways. So I really appreciate him. Um, we'll link all of the things um, in the show notes. Um, are we allowed to talk about Corona or not at all? It's. I mean, it's up to us and up to YouTube. So, like, if I try to not take anything with Corona this week, um, okay, that I want to say like, room for you. <laughs> I want to say one, like, kind of a couple of quick things, mm -hmm. um, because they're starting to the information about people who are asymptomatic but have Corona is starting to get out, and um, there's some estimates that it might be forty percent or even. Um, 60%, I think 40% is the most likely because there's been a study in Hong Kong and also in China, which suggests that, um, yeah, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread of corona could be happening um, quite often. 
And then there's also been some studies recently coming out showing uh, basically how many thousands of people have been saved by staying indoors by the lockdown that we have in Mm -hmm. Europe. So these kind of um, modeling studies. And I think that's both of these things really highlight how important it is to lock yourself down as hard as you can um, and stay indoors. Um, And then the final thing is I found a meme that said that people who won't self-quarantine are the same people who would hide a zombie bite. And I really liked it because I like zombies a lot. (laughs) Yeah, not to make light of the situation, but I, I was like, yeah. Yeah, it's really true. It's um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't so trust people who thing. break isolate, who break quarantine. Like, don't trust those people. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's not like absolute quarantine. You can go to the store. You can go for exercise. Just like try to quarantine as much as you can. Um, yeah. Uh, you mentioned like Do numbers right and and models about the spread of the thing, and I have a message to our scientist friends who are not epidemiologists or people who work in medicine and very closely to um, pandemic stuff. Um, because I've seen on Twitter a lot of people who are like computer scientists or people who in other ways do stuff with numbers making their own models and uh, attacking expert opinions based on their own models. And I oh, would just really? kindly ask you to stop because you probably have no Don't idea what you're talking kindly. about. Tell them to get the hell out. You can beep that if you want to. Like, <laughs> get the beep out. Like, <laughs> Because um, you probably don't fully understand how uh, epidemiology works so don't try to make your own models and assume numbers especially like population values and so on i've seen some guy um creating like a big excel table and it looked it looked exp- uh, impressive but then uh some like people who actually know this no, stuff I mean, commented on, on it and were like there's so much wrong with this like i can't i don't even know where to start and so like if you want to do this for for your own enjoyment, please do, but don't share it on social media. Don't contribute to misinformation or uh, ambiguity. Uh, even if you think you you cracked something there, you probably didn't. Um, there's probably a good reason why a lot of the models by the experts look very similar. And so, if you find a contradicting model, it probably means that you don't understand the thing and not that all of the experts are wrong. Unless you no, I want to be even harsher. Like, if you're trying to model a global pandemic and your tool you've chosen is Microsoft Excel, you need to rethink what you're doing with your free time and realize that you're probably not the best person for this task. Because I, I am terrible at any kind of modeling statistics, any of this stuff. But honestly, if you're using Microsoft Excel, that in itself is a clue. And frankly, if you put anything with the word COVID into Excel, Excel should have a little pop up. That annoying paperclip guy from the 1990s should pop up and be like, hi, can I help you? Go outside. Or like, don't go outside because you have to stay inside, but get off Excel because this is not the right thing to be doing right now. Like, that is enough in itself, surely. <laughs> no, I really want and to like fake a little screenshot with like the, the little paperclip guys. It seems like you're trying to model a global pandemic. Yeah, Using Excel? Help on- <laughs> Do you need professional help with that? <laughs> Do you Please need stop. To? <laughs> Bugger off. Am I allowed to say bugger off? Bugger off is okay, right? It's okay, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's just my my message out there because I've I've seen some other people in my sort of area of of other researchers that I follow who at least like they copy the numbers and they like do their own plots and and to to show that and I don't even know what they want to show with it. Um, so like 
this is sensitive times like do this maybe later if you want to do case studies or work like do crazy statistics play with tools don't do it publicly now please um so yeah so do it quietly with your friends yeah i mean it's an it's an opportunity to play around with certain things that you maybe don't have as much access to usually because now a lot of numbers are publicly available that otherwise might be a little bit harder to get if you want to do like modeling of disease spread but just don't put it out in public like play with it in your own time at home like delete the file at the end or whatever but just don't put it on facebook speaking of putting things out in public i saw um a a story on the washington post which i didn't read because i i don't have access um I'm, i'm not a subscriber to the washington post um and it said if you've run out of toilet paper woody allen's memoir is also made of paper <laughs> And then it says, do you like 400-page books in which wealthy 84-year-old Oscar-winning directors portray themselves as innocent knaves who just can't catch a break? And I liked it a lot, and it made me laugh. And I might have even <laughs> mentioned it last week, but I don't care. It made like it made me happy. I'm sorry, Woody Allen. No, I'm not even sorry, Woody Allen. But um, I didn't read the article, so I don't know if there's anything like offensive in there. But <laughs> if the only person being offended is Woody Allen, I think I'm also okay with that, honestly. Like... Yeah. yeah um, My toilet paper situation personally right now is okay, but I will keep this in mind. <laughs> yes. Mine is also okay. I can recommend like one of these like squishy um butt shower things. Um I think there's even now like three printed Yeah, but it's like it's not a bidet that's hooked up to the water lines. It's a like a plastic water bottle that you fill with water specific and it has like a little Yeah, yeah spout. but I think a bidet is like the the lifestyle choice and the okay. activity, not yeah. necessarily the the ceramic thing but i could be wrong okay yeah to me like in german bidet is just like the, the special bowl um that as a th- but, child i always thought it's just like to wash your feet in or something but then also to bidet like what's the verb of bidet in english is bidet i then went to the bidet to bidet myself bidet to you clean like yourself this, yeah, in a bidet uh, i don't think bidet yeah um italians <laughs> or french is it also in french i don't know in france i have no idea Like I never counted one encountered one in France. My first meeting of a bidet was when I went to Italy when I yeah. was 11 years old and I was shocked. I didn't I I didn't know what it was for um when I went there because we went like with a school trip or something so there were also no parents around and you don't really ask your teachers about stuff in the bathroom. Did um, you try it though? I think I once washed my feet in it um because we, I came from the beach I had like very sandy feet and it had like the oh, like it was you're probably afloat. ruining it for everyone else. I mean, I just splashed water over my feet so the sand would come off. Yeah, but the next person who uses it is going to get sand on their bum. And you don't sit in it. You, like, squat over it, so... I don't like, know I, how to use it. <laughs> is it clear now that I have no idea how to use this thing? <laughs> anyway, I, I should... That should be on my bucket list, right? Use a bidet. Yeah. I. We should make boring bucket lists. Like, things we can do. And things that we can do while... In, like, lockdown bucket list. Very achievable bucket list, yeah. Um, so use <laughs> but a like maybe a lockdown specific one. Use a bidet. Yeah. Um, floss would be something for me because I never oh, floss. That's so dull. I, I once kept it up for four days in a row and that was my record. Like, And that was with my friend texting me to remind me every single night. And I still was like, like she would message me and I'd be like, I just don't want to. Like I just, something inside me is pushing against this. 
What what are other things that you can do at home that are very boring? I, I'm just thinking of like personal hygiene things, which sounds as if I'm just like bad at personal hygiene, which I'm not. <laughs> like I do. I mean, I think probably like bathing less op- often would be better while at home as opposed to bathing. Like you don't need to, you don't need to have more showers. You probably need to shower less often. Yeah, I mean, I do shower less often because like even if my hair looks like a mess, I'm like nobody's going to see this. I don't care. Um, I did shave my legs the other day just because I was bored, which is like, I think, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really <laughs> that into removing my leg hair that often. Sorry, whoever's listening to this. And then I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to treat myself. Like, yeah. I'm so bored. Um, I think I'll start ironing at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah, I started ironing because I started sewing and then I have to iron the cloth, like the fabric. That's the, literally the only reason that I iron. I tried sewing without ironing before you sew. It does not. It does not work well. No, no, it's not good. Especially not like if you do like the is it the hems or like the the things that you fold over yeah, the, the edges. Yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, okay. What other <laughs> what other news have you got, Yoram? I I have two terrible news. Um, I have one thing. It's just I just wrote down centipedes are terrifying um because mm-hmm. i saw a tweet where somebody says like millipedes the one with the thousands of legs they're very nice they eat plants they're harmless you can play with them like i wouldn't play with them i find them disgusting but they're harmless while centipedes are very aggressive hunters that are poisonous uh or venomous venomous mm-hmm. poisonous if I, if I would eat them and i die no they mm-hmm. bite you and then you die or at least it's very dangerous to your health it, because like some people uh, other people on twitter would like show them off crawling on their arm and they're like they're as long as a forearm which is also terrifying but um you never know if they would bite you or not so just in the very off chance during your quarantine that you encounter a centipede don't play with it it might hurt you and you don't want to go to the er right now with a centipede bite <laughs> super awkward there's another list of like things that you don't want to do right now like yeah. don't don't be that person it's like the opposite of a of a um what was the list a bucket list this is like mm. things you it's very achievable not to do which is playing with the centipede yeah um oh i have a cool word that i found out about um <laughs> Okay. This is the point where we go back to like elementary school level of information. It's just like a new word. Okay, Yoram, I bet you f- 500 euros that you haven't heard this word before. Yeah, it's it's not my native language. So it's very likely that I haven't heard that word before. So I'm not going to take that bet. Okay. Um, Panjandrum. Panjandrum? Or one word. Panjandrum. Panjandrum. No, I... Um, so apparently the meaning of the word is a person who claims, who has or who claims to have a great deal of authority or influence. Mm-hmm. So Yaram was the greatest scientific panjandrum of the 21st century, is an example sentence that okay. I stole from Google. Um, but the reason that panjandrum has that meaning is because, I think, a panjandrum is actually a thing or there's some link between this so a panjandrum you can google this um or i can just tell you there was the great panjandrum which is this huge um kind of a cart but it's not really a cart it's basically two giant wheels that would belong on a horse driven cart that are just kind of glued on an axle and then on each of the spokes of the wheels you put explosives (laughs) 
And the idea is that it kind of, the rockets go off directionally and hurtles this thing like rolling really fast and it should be able to smash through concrete um, and thus open up a space which then like a tank can go through in a wall, in a concrete wall. Um, and this was one of the, like we could say stupid because it doesn't didn't work. If it had worked, it would have been ingenious. Um, and things terrifying. That the British <laughs> and terrifying. Definitely terrifying. I think like whether it worked or not, it would have been terrifying. As it turned out, it was a massive failure. It kind of like rolled twice and fell over and then probably blew up and sank into a swamp. But it was a failure. It was designed by the British military um, during World War Two. And it's one of several different highly experimental projects they had, which did not work and was never used. So this is the great Panjandrum. Panjandrum is like an amazing thing or person. And this even itself originally comes from another reference, which is a guy called Samuel Foote. Foot, I don't know. Um, he had a nonsense paragraph. I, I don't know this literature, so I don't know who this Samuel guy is, um, where he returned to, referred to something called the Grand Pandendrum. Um, and the closing line of that is, till the gunpowder ran out at the heels of their boots. So <laughs> there's like a word that I learned. And then I was like, what the hell is this word? And then I clicked on a link and I went down this like Alice in Wonderland slide rabbit hole to find out what this is but i think um the wikipedia article of the the war potential weapon that always failed is kind of cool um and i like that one of the pictures on the wikipedia page is just like this thing fallen on its side in kind of like a river <laughs> and also it's very really close hard. to the starting point if if it look what it looks like yeah and it's 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 quite hard usually for like an inanimate object which is like essentially just two wheels glued together to look sad and defeated but somehow this pension drum is like in the river and it just like it just it it knows it did badly like it just knows <laughs> it's failed and it's um it's very yeah. aware of its failure <laughs> yes so also <laughs> for your reference there's a musical called pension drum um that opened in 1893 and um, there's a picture book called The Great Pandendrum himself. So apparently this is a thing that has been happening in like the British language and or vernacular for some, what, for a while. And now that I've come to Britain, I must assimilate and learn about pandendrums. And there's even in anime, it says it's featured in the film Girls und Panzer der Film. And that's the English title of, of the, the Japanese movie. Um, where somebody mentions a pension drum uh, when a character shoots a ferris wheel and like it tumbles downward and it is actually successful in breaking through a barrier it says here um, so <laughs> it's, it even made yeah, it into anime uh, <laughs> like this weird thing it's apparently a thing that everybody knew about except for us <laughs> it, it just it looks ridiculous it reminds me of a thing that Colin Fursey is a YouTuber who builds like insane inventions that oh, but they often or usually work uh, and quite well but this looks like something that he would do like put two wheels and something put uh, fireworks on it like rockets on it and see how fast it would go um, and yeah thank you for that um, I, I don't really I have just like a, a short sweet story that I saw 
on Twitter where somebody uh, due to the isolation um, just posted that, that, that a photo of a black and white cat he saw in a window opposite of his house and he put out like, a big sign that says like what's the name of the black and white cat and then the other person hung up a, a sign that says Walter and then he says like Walter is a very nice cat um, <laughs> and then the person replied again by paper it's like yeah Walter says thank you <laughs> um <laughs> So I just like that very much. And there's already all that there is to this story. It's just um, like figuring out the name of a cat over the paper. But it's not my cat fact. I do have a cat fact. Um, I have another thing Mm -hmm. before the cat fact, maybe. Just a... I think you've probably already seen this. I might have even sent this to you already. Um, The Guardian Australia had an article, which was actually their top article yesterday or the day before. Um, And it's one of the few things... Like, I'm personally not into physics at all. I'm emphatically not into astrophysics. Um, And I'm also not a patriot. I don't often think, wow, Australians, you did really well. But this was a scenario which gave me both appreciation of astrophysics or an astrophysicist and of Australia. And it also has something to do with isolation. It's the fact that there was an Australian astrophysics who was in isolation, got a bit bored and started trying to design a... um, a contraption to prevent people from touching their face, which would help stop the spread of coronavirus. And the end product is that he got four magnets stuck up his nose and he had to be taken to the emergency hospital. <laughs> so, um, very in line with what we were talking about. And you should definitely check out The Guardian's article because the picture of him on the cover is him looking very unamused indeed. He looks like, Again, like the Panjan drum, he looks a little bit certain that he's done the wrong thing. But actually, he's very good-natured. And um, throughout the article, like they, they talk to him. Um, and he's just kind of like... <laughs> I don't know. He's, he seems like quite amused by, by what's happening. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's fun. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, he must not be a parent because it's one of the things that you learn very early that magnets are very dangerous toys you don't give them to kids because if you get them in your body it can be very problematic especially if there's more than one Um, well it's also this scenario where like he got one in there or two in there and then he sent more in there to try and get them out and then just ended up with every and he's like at this point i had run out of magnets (laughs) so like and the other great thing is that his partner actually works at the emergency at the hospital. So she basically made him go to the hospital, to her hospital, just so that she could like show off her idiot partner. Like she was kind of like, check what my idiot partner did. And he was like, yeah, like she really enjoyed this, that she got to show all her colleagues, like the partner who who got magnets in his nose. So um, go and read that. Uh, yeah, yeah, he has a PhD. I just wanted to double check that. Yeah. <laughs> A PhD doesn't prevent you from sticking magnets up your nose. Have you got a very charming cat fact? Because I've got like a kind of vaguely animal thing to mention. I have a charming cat fact that's actually really cat related. Okay, my vaguely charming animal thing is the fact that lots of animals have been adopted from pet shelters in the last couple of weeks because of the COVID. Um, and now it's kind of a nice time to take them home and snuggle up with them. So there's been, I mean, also some of the 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 fostering, the um, the shelters have to close because of COVID, but there's been like this huge upsurge in people taking pets home and bonding with them while they're at home, which is really, really cute. Although I've heard on, was it Reply All, the podcast, or 
Yeah, I think it was on Reply All, um, where they talked to someone in, in France and there in, in Paris and, uh, and other cities that are un under lockdown. The only way you can go out is like if you go running or if you have a dog. So people are sharing their dogs, um, like walking their dog to a friend's home, then staying at their friend's home. So the friend could take the dog and walk to the next place. Uh, which is not uh, very smart and i think apart some some people would like take uh, like get dogs and things to have the free pass to go outside because i think in france they're much stricter like you need a per like you need uh, like a slip of paper that like gives you permission mm. to go out um and if you have a dog you get one of these uh slips of paper so sort of the dogs are okay. the gateway fine the people who But are still very dogs for the, are for the animals. still stupid and annoying and the people who adopted the cats are perfect and amazing yeah yeah the end. It's perfect to like get your cat really stockholm on you if you are home and it like, can force the cat to interact with you the entire time that's how you bond with a cat right i mean it worked for you didn't it right now my cat still doesn't really like me <laughs> i mean she's getting definitely better By, by But the sometimes end, she looks at both of us and she's just like, when are you going back to work? Like, this is supposed to be my time. It's like three in the afternoon. Like, I have a feeling yeah. my cats are also like stressed out by this because we are home so much. Um, mm. Because they like they start attacking each other more and things like that. Uh, and I don't know how they would. I, I'm, maybe they enjoy the quiet when we're gone. Um, but mm. I don't know. Cat fact. Mm -hmm. uh, my cat fact is that I found uh, on the Science Connected magazine where they talk about a study that has been performed on the calming effects of music for cats. And I think we might have mentioned it in the past that this sort of thing exists cat specific music. Um, but now they have done research on 20 cats, uh, 10 per group. So one is the control, control group and the other um, did, was exposed to like uh, a number of different um, selected tracks from this like cat-specific music. That uh, There is like a guy who uh, made an album called Music for Cats. I bought it on Kickstarter, <laughs> played it twice to my cats. And then I I don't know where I lost put the CD and I don't even have a CD player anymore. I think it's even on Spotify now. Anyway, they tested uh, what what are the effects on cats to listen to music made for them when they have to go to the vet, and they could see that it would reduce stress levels. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in the article here, like they linked the original paper, but I didn't look at it. But they didn't go into much detail how much they would reduce stress, but enough to be uh, significant. So, um, how did they measure the stress levels? Uh, I think it was something like like blood pressure and general behavior. And um, can I quickly find it now? Yeah, they said behavioral behavior behavioral results. Um, so they probably mm -hmm. looked at like how stressed the cat looked and had probably some like qualities qualifiers that I would look at. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and it seems to it seems to work. So if you like me bought the album or if you just find it on Spotify or wherever, um, maybe play it if your cat is really stressed out because you're at home the entire time. Uh, mm. So 
it's it's not getting like too angry and annoyed at you and it's like docile and calm i think it has something to like it has like frequencies in it that resemble like birds chirping and like na- like frequencies that resemble nature sounds without actually just being a soundscape um recorded out in nature so um it's also like it's it's not terrible to listen to as a human that's always good you don't want like your cat to be super chill and you just to be like wanting to kill everybody yeah i think so uh so if you want to get in touch with us you can follow us on many if not all of the social media that are in existence and have been and will be which is on facebook and insta we're not on snapchat or tiktok we will never be on snapchat i would like to make that pledge to our listeners (laughs) yes i don't know how to use it and i think yoram like looks really terrible with bunny ears on or whatever that's not true and hurtful, but still, uh, we're not on Snapchat because I, I have no, like, I'm too old for Snapchat and also for TikTok. Like, it's about dancing. I, I, I can't dance. Anyway, uh, on Facebook and Instagram, TikTok you can talk to... TikTok is not just about dancing, though. No, like, all of the videos I see on TikTok are people dancing to music with, like, choreographies and stuff. Mm, okay. I thought that's their deal, but I don't know. Um, on Facebook and Instagram, you can talk to Tegan, and that's at... Uh, Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plant Pipettes. You can always send us uh, emails. You find the contact email on our website. Uh, our website is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And there we post things two times a week, plus another time for the podcast, about general stories, cool stuff that we found that we write about in the world of plant molecular biology. Sometimes we you- talk about kitty litter. And if you have any questions, yeah, actually, we had some two, two very nice posts this week, uh, apart from all the other weeks where it's terrible posts, but this week it was really nice. Oh my God, why? <laughs> Tegan selected two very nice papers um, that deal with household items and how they are important in uh, research. The first one being vegetable juice and the second one cat litter. Um, mm-hmm. So check those out. They're very fun. They're very interesting. And um, if you have any questions, comments, um, please reach out to us. We're always happy to answer them, especially if you have like plant-specific questions. We're really happy to um, take care and answer your questions as best as we can. And um, rate us on iTunes. That would be nice. And I think that's it. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. And goodbye. Goodbye.